Although I must say, it's a bit hairy getting here. I'm still not used to one of those newfangled flying camels, what do you call them, aeroplanes. And then getting, getting here from the airport was a bit of an adventure as well. Um, there, there weren't many other donkeys on the M5 and I got a bit of a hurry up from other people on the road. Uh, anyway, enough of that. Why I'm here today is to tell you about an amazing meeting I had with someone called Jesus of Nazareth. You know that teacher who's been causing such a stir recently? But before we get to that, let me tell you a bit about myself. I'm a Pharisee and I'm also a member of the Jewish ruling council. If I wasn't so uh, modest, uh, I'd say that I'm, I'm actually a pretty important person in Israel. I'm an expert in the Jewish law. When people want to know how to follow God, they, they come to me as one of Israel's leaders. Not only that, but I'm also considered a bit of a role model when it comes to following God and how to please him and keep his law. Well, back to this meeting with Jesus of Nazareth. Because of my position and reputation, I I couldn't just go there publicly. I found it necessary to go and see him at night. I wanted to stay under the radar. I know radars haven't been invented yet, but I didn't want it known that I was consulting with this rebel rabbi. He's already made a lot of enemies, you see, and uh, especially amongst my colleagues, my, my Pharisee friends and the ruling council. But unlike some of my colleagues, I actually believe that this guy has come from God. If he wasn't from God, he couldn't be doing some of the things that he's been doing, these miracles, these signs. So I go to him and tell him that. I I said that we know that you must have come from God. But instead of telling me who he really is, he drops a clangor. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above, unless he is born again. Well, after I picked myself up from the ground, I tried to work out what on earth he was saying. Was this bloke on magic mushrooms? Perhaps he'd been eating some of those fermented olives, you know, the ones you can pick up on the road outside of Jerusalem. It gradually dawned on me that he was trying to tell me that I couldn't enter the kingdom. Me, a Pharisee, one of Israel's leading experts in the law, that I somehow needed to start my life again. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I respected him, but, well, at the end of the day, he hasn't hasn't even been to Bible college. He was trying to tell me that everything I'd learnt was useless and that I needed to start again. Then he goes on to say that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born from above, unless he is born of water and the Spirit. He wanted him to say that the flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. As I thought about that, he seems to be saying that this new birth being born from above isn't like a physical birth, but it's a spiritual birth. When I asked him about how this thing can happen, he sounded surprised that I was Israel's teacher and yet I didn't know. 
Then he said that I don't understand when he speaks about earthly things, so how am I going to understand when he speaks about heavenly things? Then he went on to say that the only one who's ever gone to heaven is the one who's come from heaven, the Son of Man. And then he finished off by talking about the story of Moses lifting up the snake in the desert, saying the Son of Man must be lifted up and that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Well, this one I was totally spun out. Why was he talking about the Son of Man? Oh yeah, I knew who the Son of Man was. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament scriptures talk about, the one who, the promised one who's going to come, God's promised king who will come with the clouds of heaven and all people from every nation and every tribe will fall down and worship him. I know who the Son of Man was, but what does the Son of Man have got got to do with being born from above? What does it have to do with Jesus? It's all too much. My head's about to explode. I think I won't need one of those fermented olives. Well, it's been great talking to you. I've got to run. Well, thank you, Nicodemus. At that point, we leave him to think about his encounter with Jesus. As we heard from him, a very strange interaction. He goes to Jesus as an expert of the law, used to being treated as, with respect as one of Israel's leaders, but he has his expectations shattered by this rural self-taught rabbi from Galilee. So what are we to make of it? Well, as we come to God's word, let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you for this great story. Uh, We thank you for uh, your words through Jesus that we must be born from above. Please help us to understand it. Please speak to us through it. And please challenge and convict us from it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we heard from Nicodemus, instead of filling in the blanks, I just realised I need a clicker. Does anyone have a clicker? As we, um, instead of filling in the blanks for him and answering his questions, Jesus blows Nicodemus' worldview apart by telling him that to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born from above or born again. Not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And as we get into our first section, we see Jesus dives straight in and he cuts through the normal polite banter and cuts straight to the chase. So in our first section... It's not working. Bloody terminal. Here we go, I think we're on. So in our first section, Jesus talks about, tells Nicodemus that he must have new birth from above. Now we've already heard a bit about who Nicodemus is and his position in Jewish society, but we get another subtle little clue about who he is from John. Last week we looked at chapter 2 with Tim. And remember, if you were here at the end of chapter 2, John tells us that many people believed in Jesus' name. But then in verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them 
for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about man, for he knew what was in each man. Now I'm aware here that I'm not being gender inclusive here. Most of the modern versions have person rather than man and normally I would do the same. But in this case I want to use man because it's in the original language and I think John uses it in a very deliberate way as we flow into chapter 3. Have a look at chapter 3 verse 1 with me. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Again, the most recent version of the NIV has changed this around, which is a pity, but this is the word order in the original Greek. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And if we put it together, the link becomes quite obvious from the end of chapter 2 to beginning of chapter 3. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. John is making a link between the people at the end of chapter 2 who believed Jesus, but Jesus knew their belief was shallow so he didn't entrust himself to them, and then Nicodemus, who was one of these people. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement of Nicodemus, is it? He was in the camp of those who really didn't understand who Jesus was. He may have had a kind of faith, but it was a fickle faith that Jesus couldn't trust. And that assessment is reinforced by another little detail that we see here. Have a look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night. We've already heard why he may have done that, because he wanted to do it under the radar and and, and not to be seen by others. But in John's Gospel, darkness, night, has a deeper meaning. It symbolises ignorance, a rejection of the truth, a lack of knowledge, a rejection of the light that comes from God. Nicodemus was still in the darkness. Despite being Israel's teacher, he didn't understand God's ways and in verse 3 Jesus tells him very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now the phrase born again can also mean born from above in in the original Greek it has both senses and I think Jesus has both meanings in mind both a second birth and also a birth from above a birth from God. Nicodemus hasn't been born from above. Despite all his knowledge and learning, he remains outside. And he shows by his response in verse 4 that the idea of a radical new birth is something he hasn't even imagined. Totally out of left field for him. Jesus goes on to explain that he's talking about a spiritual birth not a natural birth. And he tells Nicodemus he shouldn't be surprised that that what he's saying is it's, it's not a new idea. In verse 10 he asks, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand this? This is actually something that Nicodemus should have known about. As Israel's teacher, 
He knew his Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And back in verse 5, there's a little hint, a little reference to a very famous passage in the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have known about. Have a look at verse 5. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now we may naturally think Jesus here is talking about natural birth and spiritual birth, the the water symbolising breaking of the waters before a woman gives birth. But I think Jesus has something else in mind here. The, The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament wrote about a time when God's people will have a new beginning. And this is God's promise. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27 with me. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you see the link? God will make his people clean with water. He will give them a new heart, a heart of flesh, and he will put his spirit in them. And that idea is sprinkled, not only in this passage, but it's sprinkled through the Old Testament, particularly through the prophets. It comes hot on the heels of passages that hammer away at how how sinful and how lost God's people are and how without hope they are because they can't and they won't obey God. But instead of leaving them to rot in their misery, God intervenes, he shows up. And his solution is to fix the problem himself, where the people had no hope of of redeeming themselves, of, of fixing themselves. God fixes the problem by giving his people a new life, a new spirit, a new heart. That's the message of hope that shines through the Old Testament and Nicodemus should have seen it. He should have known that that's the same promise that Jesus is talking about here, being born again, born from above, a completely new beginning. But Nicodemus was blind to it. He was still in the darkness, as we've seen. He couldn't see past his religious worldview that told him that if he kept God's law and did all the right things, he was okay. And he thought he was okay, all right. He was an insider. He was part of God's people. He was God's chosen people and the leader of God's chosen people. And he was so wrapped up in his position as Israel's teacher. He had so much invested in his status as a good faithful Pharisee that it was beyond his imagination that he'd missed the boat, that somehow he was outside of the kingdom. But that's exactly what Jesus said. Now we may shake our heads at how, how thick Nicodemus was, but maybe we're not that different. Because deep down we all love to think that we bring something to the table with God. 
that actually we have something to offer God. It doesn't have to be theological qualifications like Nicodemus, but it it might be um, skills that we have. That that we're you're a good listener, or you're good at offering advice. That deep down you're a good person. That your your character is actually something that God would benefit from. Maybe you're particularly patient. Perhaps you're a warm, loving person who people trust, and you can easily get alongside and encourage them. Great characteristics to have, but they don't get us right with God. Nicodemus's problem, and my problem, and I suspect it's your problem as well, is that it's almost unthinkable for us to face the reality that with God we bring absolutely nothing to the table. It's like sitting in a job interview and said, well, Marshall, what have you got to offer? Nothing. No. We bring nothing to the table except for our sin. We empty and bankrupt with no possibility of reforming ourselves, with no chance of earning our way into the kingdom. That's why we need a completely new birth a new beginning from above, not one that we bring about ourselves, but one where God breaks through and intervenes for us. Perhaps because it was so unthinkable to admit that he was powerless to get right with God by himself, Nicodemus just didn't get it. He didn't get that he had to be born from above. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things. Well, then in the next section, Jesus goes on to say that he's like a witness in court testifying to what is true. But Nicodemus and people like him do not accept his testimony. So second part is that the one who comes from above, verses 11 to 13, Jesus is the one who testifies what testifies about heaven because he is the one who has come from above. He has come from heaven. He is the expert witness. He alone is qualified to talk about heaven because he has come from heaven. Have a look at verse 13. Working. No. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the name that Jesus called himself. And it's a very significant name. We just heard from Nicodemus that the Son of Man is a figure who is a kingly figure. And it comes from the book of Daniel, where where Daniel clearly talks about the Son of Man being God's King, the Messiah. Have a look at a couple of verses with me from Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. A king who has authority over all nations, ruling over an everlasting kingdom. It's a pretty godlike picture, isn't it? Jesus is driving the point home that he is uniquely qualified to talk about things from heaven, the way that God works in human beings, because he alone is from God. In fact, in using the Son of Man, the term the Son of Man, in reminding Nicodemus of that picture from Daniel 7, Jesus is strongly hinting at the reality that he has all God's authority to rule in an eternal kingdom. Jesus goes on to say more about the Son of Man and in the next section he goes on to explain why the one who came from heaven came into the world. So section 3, the Son sent from above to save, verses 14 to 18. Jesus starts off in verse 14 with another image from the Old Testament. Moses lifting up the snake in the desert. We won't read that story now, but but here's a quick summary. came at a time when Moses was leading his people, uh, the Israelites, out of Egypt. They were out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness, which they wandered around in for 40 years. During that time, the Israelites did what they often did and they grumbled. They winced against Moses and against God for bringing them into the desert, for not having enough bread and enough water. They didn't trust God and so God punished them by sending among them poisonous snakes. A lot of people died as they were bitten by the snakes. The Israelites then cried out to God, saying, we've sinned, pray to God for us. Moses prayed to God and God told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And when the people looked at that snake, after they were bitten by the snakes, they were, they were saved, they were, they were protected from the venom of the snakes and they would live. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he would fulfill the same role as the bronze snake. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Instead of looking at the snake, those who look to the Son of Man and believe in him, would have eternal life. The snake was lifted up on a pole. Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. The Son of Man. Remember we've just read that he is the king who would rule over all nations in an eternal kingdom. But then the twist in the plot, because this king would be lifted up Lifting up has a figurative meaning as well as physically being lifted up. It means to be made famous, to be glorified, 
His name would be shown to be great. But it wouldn't be in the way that Nicodemus had, had, would have expected the Son of Man to be lifted up. Instead of coming with cheering and the sound of trumpets, this king is lifted up, but he is lifted up to die. His greatness is shown, but it is shown in dying for the world. And that act, dying on the cross, reveals so much about God and what he is willing to do for us. It shows how much he loved the world. That's us, you and I. And so we come to the most famous verse in the Bible that I'm sure you've all heard and you may know off by heart. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God the Father sent his one and only Son, the Son of Man. He is the King, and he will reign over his kingdom forever. But he reveals his kingship, by saving the world. He defeats the powers of darkness. He has defeated the power of sin in you and I. And now we only have to believe in him and we will have eternal life. We will be part of his eternal kingdom. You and I need a saviour because without one we stand condemned which is what our last section is about, verses 18 to 21. Light from above exposes the darkness below. We are told in verse 19 that people love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus is the light who has come into the world, but we have all loved darkness because our deeds are evil and we don't want our deeds to be exposed. Verse 20. It's a terrifying prospect, the idea that someone can see right into our heart. At least it is for me and I suspect for you too. Because even at my best, even when I'm doing something that's genuinely good, my motives still aren't pure. I'm still full of self-centeredness and self-interest, pride, perhaps jealousy. But then if my heart was exposed at the times when I'm not at my best, when I'm tired and and my, my brain goes into neutral, my thoughts wander, that's not a prospect I even want to think about, people seeing into my heart then. So we all want to hide. We want to hide our darkest secrets from other people. But then when we're confronted by God, we instinctively know that there's no running, there's no hiding from God. He is light, inescapable light that shines right through us so that we feel naked, exposed. And so our natural inclination is to run, to hide. 
Perhaps like Nicodemus, perhaps we hide behind religion. Or maybe we hide behind the pleasures of this world, keeping God at arm's length. Because we've run away from the light and loved the darkness, God's verdict here is that we stand condemned. Without Jesus, we are under God's wrath, his judgment. We are like the Israelites in the desert who were in desperate straits with these venomous snakes among them and, and, and sitting under God's judgment with no hope, no hope of saving themselves. They needed God to intervene with a bronze snake or they would have all perished. And we find ourselves in the same position. Without God giving us a radical new beginning, without him intervening, we've no hope of being right with him. Well, today we've covered a lot of ground. Let's try to bring it together. Nicodemus came to Jesus wanting to know who he was. Jesus turned the spotlight on him and told Nicodemus that what he needed was to be born from above, born again, born by the Spirit. And Jesus says that he is the one who came from above, the Son of Man, and that he has been sent from above to save the world, a world that is condemned and in darkness. In this story, it's not just Nicodemus who's under the spotlight, is it? Because Jesus is putting you and I under the light as well. If you are already a follower of Jesus, his word for you is that just as you came to him with nothing in your hands, so you continue to offer him nothing. We began the Christian life as a totally new beginning where we needed God to break through and to start again. We contributed nothing. And we continue to live in the same way. We continue to live for him day by day knowing that it's still all by his grace. We still wake up each morning with empty hands. We are beggars in the bread line who know where the line goes and our job is to point others to where they can get the bread. Well, perhaps you're here today as someone who, who's, who's a bit like Nicodemus. You're not sure who Jesus is, but you're curious. You want to find out more. Jesus is calling you, like Nicodemus, to surrender, to throw your hands up, to say, to come to the point where you admit that you can't do anything to get closer to God by yourself. You can't work your way to God. You can't think your way to God. You can't meditate your way to God. You can only throw up empty hands in surrender and say to Jesus, I must be born again. And at that point, 
we stop trusting ourselves and start trusting Jesus to save us. At that very point, God works a miracle. We go from death to life. We go from outside his kingdom to being in his kingdom. And that, friends, is good news. Amen.